You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right. Well, hey, folks, uh, today I'm just, we're going to get right into it. My guests are Duan and Vicki Gray. And Duan and Vicki are the founders and the pastors of Transformation Church. And uh, they are really renowned ar- around the world for their, their work in creating multi-ethnic faith communities, multi-ethnic churches. And you can go to the church, and, and particularly in the good old days when we used to get on planes, uh, one of Duan's early books was The High Definition Leader. His most recent book is The Good Life, which we are going to get into in this episode. But I just want to first begin by asking you guys, um, how did you become followers of Christ? And then we'll kind of get into how did you get into ministry? Okay. Do you want to go? Okay, sure. Okay, so um, I actually grew up not far from where you are. I, I'm from Montana, born and raised. And uh, my parents divorced when I was young. So my we I did not grow up in a Christian home. And um, when my parents divorced, my dad remarried a woman who was uh, Mormon. She was LDS. And I used to spend my uh, school years in Montana, my summers in Oregon, attending the Mormon church. And so there we go. <laughs> That's okay. I keep on going. Like he's, and so, he's a believer. Oh, Just for our, because uh, we, we don't video these, we can see each other, but our audience is audio. Uh, the Greys have this cat that is really keen to be part of the podcast. So you may hear the cat or you may hear them refer to the cat through the episode. Yes. yes. Yeah. His name is Mr. Boots and he's two and a half feet long and 22 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he just noticed the boom microphone and decided he wanted to get that. But anyways, back to the story. <laughs> so growing up, I actually spent more time at the Mormon church. Um, although I really wasn't interested in it at all. Um, at that point, I would say my God at that point was achievement. And, um, you know, they say a God is anything that gives you, um, purpose. It gives you identity and it gives you joy. Well, that was it for me. Um, I definitely found my, my purpose and my joy in achieving things. So I was an overachiever. Uh, I was valedictorian in high school and college. I went to college on a track an academic scholarship. And so um, we all know the problem is eventually those things start to let you down because you can't be um, the best at everything forever. And so uh, at, over time, the, there started to be chinks in, in that, uh, that particular God. Um, also, uh, because I didn't know the love of Christ, I was pretty much looking for love in all the wrong places. So I had a lot of wounds that I carried with me. Uh, I got to BYU because they offered me the best um, scholarship of any Division One school. I didn't want to go to a small school because I grew up in a small town, and I wanted to go to a school that had um, a lot of credibility and that the degree would be would mean something. BYU gave me the best opportunity to do that, and my sister was living there, who is Mormon. She's LDS, and so that's how I ended up there. I did not meet him until my junior year. He's two years younger than me. And so um, during that time, I was still, I would say I wasn't seeking as much because I was still achieving, you know, I was, that God was still um, sustaining me, so to speak. And I didn't come to faith until uh, he had gotten drafted by the Indianapolis Colts. We moved to Indiana 
And I uh, worked as a registered dietitian in the inner city in downtown Indianapolis. And there was another dietitian there who really, she lived the faith before she ever opened her mouth. And I would come home to him and I would say, yeah, there's this, uh, there's this lady at work and she's a really good Christian because I would have said I was a Christian because I wasn't Muslim or Buddhist or anything else. Um, But I didn't know what a Christian was. I definitely likened it with being American probably and um, believing in God. And one day she, I was asking her questions um, like, I was really starting to seek at that point. Uh, we'll get into the NFL stuff, but I felt like God set us up because we had achieved all of this. And then there was still just this void, this emptiness. And for me, I had deep in my, my soul. I think I knew I sensed the Bible says it's written on our heart um, that there had to be an accounting. There had to be a reckoning for some of the choices I'd made. And so that I think really set me to seeking. And so I was, you know, researching different things. And one day I asked her if demons were real and um, being a Christian, she knew right away, okay, God's working here. um, She said, God, God literally scared the hell out of her. (laughs) Literally. And so, um, so she said, yeah, they are real. And she, she, I could tell she was tiptoeing around a little bit. And she said, well, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. And she very kindly, gently and lovingly said, well, being a Christian is more than believing in God. It's um, believe in Jesus Christ, died for your sins, um, raised to new life and went on to explain that. And I just remember looking at her like, I have no idea what you're saying. You know, like it kind of went, you know, the the blinders were still on, but she planted a seed. And that was really the beginning for me. And there was a couple other experiences that happened, but I don't know if you want to jump in at this point. Yeah. So uh, I grew up uh, in the very opposite context of her. Um, So I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. My mom was 16 when she was pregnant with me. My my dad was 17. Both of them struggled with various issues. So my grandparents primarily raised me. And so like all families, lots of family dysfunction. um, We kind of had a Jehovah's Witness background. Because uh, of my grandmother uh, used to practice with them, but they kicked her out for cussing and smoking. And so she kind of made like her own little thing. But we didn't really practice what that meant. There's a lot of dysfunction, chaos. I had normalized a lot of that. And I didn't realize how bad it was until I got older. Now, I love my family, but it is what it, what it is, right? And yeah. so I think God in his grace, like, protected me. I don't know if I could have handled it. Right. So anyway, by age 13, I decided that football was going to be my way out of my environment. So I worked hard, uh, transferred to a high school called Converse Judson, ended up becoming an all-state player, got a football scholarship to Brigham Young. So here I am coming from a uh, multi-ethnic, socioeconomically diverse context. And I decided to go to a 98.5% Mormon overwhelmingly majority white school. And I went because I knew I'd get a world-class education. It was far from Texas. I'd play for a legendary coach and I would be on ESPN. And so decided to go Then second semester, my freshman year met her and we've been together ever since. That was 30 years ago. We've been married for 28 years. But so the thing that connected us is both of us are very, very driven. 
don't ever tell us that we can't do anything. We were focused and that's really what attracted me to her is she was organized, she was focused, she was strategic. And I was like, this is a person that I can run with. Yeah. And so anyway, have a great career at BYU. We're beloved. We're celebrated. I mean, we're probably like Mr. and Mrs. BYU. I mean, people loved us. Get drafted to the NFL in 1993. And in my mind, I'm going, this is it. This is the good life. This is happiness because I'm going to make money. I'm going to live out a dream. My money will fix my family's problems. Uh, I'll never be seen as that poor kid anymore. And 1993 was terrible. Oh, we were like, can we go back to college yeah. where where people loved us? <laughs> you know, it was it was tough. But by 1995, I was a team captain. The team was playing well. I was playing well. But at the end of that year, it was like there has to be more to life than this. And this is what was happening is number one is I couldn't forgive my dad for not being involved in my, in my life. I couldn't forgive myself for things that I had done. Uh, I couldn't love her the way she deserved to be loved because I didn't really love myself. Yeah. Um, I wasn't at peace with who I was. I thought I could achieve my way out of hurt. I thought I could accomplish my way out of brokenness. And then my body started to break down. And the NFL stands for not for long. (laughs) Isn't like the average athletic tenure in the NFL is like 18 months or something. Is that right? It's like close to three years. It's not really long. Yeah. What most fans see is the superstars, but they don't see the guys that cycle in and out. Yeah. And to to be an NFL player, the level of your commitment to that task, it's very hard not to enter into idolatry because of the level that it takes mentally, physically, and emotionally. And so I wasn't even a believer. So I was fully realized that this is my God, although I wouldn't have said that. So uh, 1995 is when I'm going through this existential moral crisis, but God in his grace had a teammate. And this really affects our leadership that every person, wherever they are, is strategically a missionary. Yeah. It's simply someone who says, I'm so satisfied in Jesus. I want you to be satisfied in him Mm -hmm. as well. So I had a teammate. His name is Steve Grant. His nickname was the Naked Preacher. Because every day after practice, he would take a shower, dry off, and wrap a towel around his waist, get his Bible, and ask my teammates one quick question, do you know Jesus? And in my mind, I'm going, do you know you're half naked? (laughs) It was the weirdest thing. And then one day he asked me in 1993, do I know Christ? And that began this five-year relationship. And so his actions and his words corresponded. Uh, He preached the gospel and then he used words to back up the gospel that he preached. Was he perfect? Of course not. But there was a level of faithfulness. And there's a supernatural something that believers have when they're abiding in Christ that I'm I'm as rational as anyone. My mentor was Dr. Norman Geisler. I'm I'm into Thomistic philosophy and I love the life of the mind, but there's a reality that goes beyond reason that the Holy Spirit penetrates. And he had that, even though I couldn't explain it. Mm -hmm. And so over a five-year process on August 2nd, 1997, it was my fifth year in the NFL. We were at Anderson University in Anderson, Indiana for training camp. And it was after lunchtime, and I should have been at the height of my career, fifth year in the NFL. 
I'm a major player on the team. I'm doing my part, but I'm just broken all this stuff. I'm just broken. So I go to my dorm room and I pick up the phone and I call her and I say, I want to be more committed to you and I want to be committed to Jesus. And I felt when I was born, uh, again, John Wesley says he had a strange warming of the heart. What I had is it was like I was in a waterfall of God's divine love, and I knew that I was loved. I knew that I was forgiven. I knew that I was valuable. I, I just was like, for the first time in my life, someone knows everything about me, mm-hmm. and I did not have to perform for them to love me. Actually, they performed to earn my love. And so for three nights after that, I I just cried before I went to bed with the reality of how can someone love me like this? And so she was about six months before me and it just kind of happened together. We didn't really know what was going on. Mm -hmm. And then I signed as a free agent to play for the Carolina Panthers here in Charlotte, North Carolina. We said we would never live in the southeast of the United States of America. But after about two weeks, we were like, we're not leaving. We have no clue why. But God and his sovereignty knew why. Yeah. yeah. It was so that we could be here for such a time as this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love how you're pointing out the life of the spirit and, and the supernatural because you're right, Dylan. Like, you're, if I remember right, your MDiv was under Norman Geisler, but then like your doctorate was under Scott McKnight, who's no slouch intellectually. He, yeah. can, he can run with the best of them in the mind. But you're right, when, when, you, when you encounter the living presence of God, you just know it, even if you can't explain it. It's a beautiful story for both of you guys. And amazing just to hear the crazy weaving, like even I, I was actually curious when I was reading up on you guys, I was like, how in the world did Doe and Gray end up at BYU of all places? Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it was astonishing. My dream being from San Antonio was to play for the University of Texas, and they didn't even know I existed. Yeah. Uh, but Brigham Young had recruited a player from my high school the year before, and a coach by the name of Claude Bassett who was at BYU recruited Texas and he knew everything about Texas and he found me. And I wasn't really for sure about it because I didn't really understand Mormonism and all these things. But anyway, they get me there in a recruiting trip and God has wired me for beauty. And these mountains just soared out of the ground to the sky. Yeah. And being from South Texas, we never see snow. Yeah. They- a snowmobile and it was beautiful. <laughs> it was clean. It was nice. But then also there was a couple of strategic things too. So I'm from the state of Texas, like football, right? That's a big, big deal. And I thought to myself, why would I go to a Texas school to compete with Texas kids when I can go to Utah and compete with the players that they get? So it was a business decision that I knew I could play early. And so I was starting by my sophomore year. Uh, But here's another thing, too, as we talk about leadership. God is weaving a story in our lives that, as Steve Jobs said, that we can only look back to connect the dots. And so going to BYU, particularly for me as an African-American male, is now as a multi-ethnic church pastor, those formative years in basically a foreign country, in a foreign culture with Mormonism, is it taught me how to listen, how to learn, and how to understand people to reach them, to connect. And so now, all these years later, that's paying dividends. And so when you think about Joseph 
going to Egypt. And for 17 years, he's learning the culture, he's learning everything. And he gets to a position of prominence. It's so that many people can be transformed. So I look back at it and I go, man, I had a legendary career. God was so gracious, but he was writing a story. You know, it's kind of like I love the fish and on top of the water, it could be calm, but below there's all types of things. And so below that story, God was weaving things that's paying dividends now. And then who would have ever thought I would get married in college? The first wedding that I went to was my own. Oh, my goodness. 1992. Who would ever thought that a city dude would marry a white girl from Montana Mm -hmm. at a Mormon school? Yeah. (laughs) And we met. Uh, it was on January 15th, which is Dr. King's birthday. Mm-hmm. And now we lead a multi-ethnic church and yeah. God has blessed us beyond what we could even. Yeah. You know, it seems to me there are two types of believers. I, I too was not raised in the church. I came to faith as a teenager. And to this day, my sister and I are the only believers in our family. All of my family is very secular. They think they love, we love each other, but they think what we believe is nuts. That's how I would summarize it. Yeah. But I, I remember when I became a Christian, I didn't know that uh, it was optional to serve. Like it just, yes. like yeah. the, the day I... The day I'm baptized, I'm recruited into the army, so to speak. That's your guys' story too. Very quickly on, you had a ministry. Yeah. And I'm always interested in talking to leaders that were in over their head early, whether you realize it or not. Sometimes when you're young, you don't even know you're over your head. Tell us about what that was like in those early days of ministry. You guys started doing itinerant work. One of the blessings of not growing up in the church, there were not church cultural unbiblical things we had to filter out. Right. So we were not familiar with consumer Christianity or what Willard says, vampire Christianity. Give me a little bit of blood and my ticket to heaven. I'm good. Both of us are athletes. Both of us have played on teams. So if you play on a team, you have a role. And what better team to play for? Like literally Jesus drafted us into his father's family. I I, I mean, so how do you not find a role? The idea of Jesus exists for our dreams is foreign to the New Testament. It was foreign to us. It was like, we want to serve him. We want other people to know him. And so in 1999, I got invited right after we retired from the NFL to speak at a youth event in Columbia, South Carolina. And I grew up as a compulsive stutterer. So I'm like, no, I'm not going. I I don't talk well. So we will fund people to go for us. And I remember being in the shower and it was like I was crying saying, God, why would you send me when you know that talking is so hard and so painful? I didn't hear a voice, but I sensed God saying, if I can raise my son from the dead, I can raise your tongue to talk. And the issue wasn't that I wouldn't stutter. The issue was, is he would be faithful to communicate through this broken vessel. So we went down, I blubbered and cried. Vicky blubbered and cried. Our little girl at the time was like four. She's just having a good time. And a bunch of kids got saved. And then people just start calling us. And Vicky has the gift of administration. She's an incredible leader. She's strategic. She organizes. And before she, before we knew it, she was organizing. I was going to speak. And for a year, we're like, 
I wonder what God wants us to do. And as we were sharing with Christians, like, well, you guys have a ministry. I'm like, what? Like, Derwin, you are an evangelist. Yeah. Vicki, you have the gift of leadership and administration. We're like, we don't know what all that means, but we know this. Jesus loved us. He changed us. And he wants to do that for the world. And we want to partner with him to do it. Yeah. So we had no idea what being missional or evangelistic meant. And so she would use her gifting. And then when you say, hun, about 2005 is when it like yeah. dawned on us like, OK, so when we would go to the club and dance, the nightclub was diverse. But when we go to Jesus's club to praise, it's segregated. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Because as we read the Bible, we saw the words Jew and Gentile. We saw a multi-ethnic church from the beginning of the church that the barrier of ethnocentrism, classism, and sexism was crucified at the cross. A new humanity was brought into being by the resurrection of Christ. And we would ask people, well, why aren't we doing that? And the answers that we got were racist. They were cowardly. They were fearful. And then we just sensed God saying, well, don't criticize, create. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's. I want to talk about Transformation Church Planting a church is no picnic. You know, not many people do it recreationally. They're like, I think I'll just plant a church. <laughs> Vicky, let's hear from you. As, as you guys got transformation going, what was the difficulty you faced early on that took you by surprise? Um, the part that he didn't share was um, as we were transitioning, um, he was actually getting his master's at the time. And he took a class from Dr. Barry Leventhal, um, and it was about the New Testament. And he would come home and say, this is what the church is. And at this point, we were still very much kind of like Lone Ranger. Like, hey, we'll come in. We'll share our stories, see what God does. And we're out because we already knew we have enough crazy between the two of us. We don't need anybody else's crazy. And so but during this time, God's working on his heart. Then he comes home and shares with me. I was serving in leadership at the church we were a part of, and I had a fantastic mentor who was basically just raising me up as a leader. And um, so during this time, he he had an experience. And uh, to fast forward, he calls me and he says, I think God wants me to be a pastor. Well, I didn't even really know what that meant, to be honest with you. I was kind of like, Okay. You know, and he said, well, okay. He was wise enough. We learned through our marriage that we not, we do not move ahead unless the other one is on the same page. That's one of the biggest lessons. We can come back to that if you want. Well, you know, honey, I think that's important. Can you dive into that right now? Because yeah. I find a lot of leaders, particularly men that's true. who it's kind of like, well, God told me, so come on. Yeah. And I don't think that's biblical. Yeah. We Thank see you. that. We actually probably see that more in ministry than um, like the secular in some ways. And so I'll give you the background is um, this when we were still in the NFL. So this was before we were Christians. And um, so NFL players have an agent and the agent negotiates the contract, et cetera. And when we were at the Colts, um, one of his friends had an agent who was recruiting him away from the agent. He told me deception. And I really early on just sensed there is something like this guy's not ethical. Like I could just feel it. Right. And I would say, I don't think you should. I don't think you should. And and he went with him. And so it was kind of like, all right, well, um, this guy ended up messing up the next contract. Um, we ended up having to go to arbitration with the NFL. It was a whole thing. 
We won. <laughs> we did win. Because but we didn't have to do it if I want to listen. Because <laughs> we weren't the wrong. But um, <laughs> so that was such a great lesson for us. And even though I would like not try to say I told you so, he was humble enough and wise enough to go, oh, you saw that he wasn't. And so something clicked at that point. And once we became Christians, we said, remember this. Okay, from now on, we don't move unless we're on the same page. And it doesn't mean I have more authority than he does. It doesn't mean anything like that. What it means is um, we're one flesh and God has gifted uniquely the two of us to come together. And so if we're not on the same page, what we think that means is God is saying, don't move yet and pray until you are on the same page. So when he called me and said, and this was like 2004, she says, I think I'm supposed to be a pastor. I was reeling from like, I don't really know what that means. Like, what is a pastor's wife supposed to be? And I was dealing with all my own issues of, well, I'm not just your wife. I'm important because remember my God that he was still pulling out of me was achievement, recognition and all that. And so um, very wisely, he said, let's just pray. So we prayed for about um, a six month period about that. And then God just really really started to unfold to me. Yes, this is the next step for us was planting a church. So we planted um, a church before Transformation Church. Actually, we joined with a couple other pastors and that for us was such a great learning experience. Uh, we, hard. It was very hard. We formed some beautiful relationships yep. out of that, um, but it was grueling. And God was teaching us about church planting on one hand. The other component was he was still traveling and speaking quite a bit. And so that level had to come down in order for him to be all in, in leading a church plant. Well, and if I could share with the first church plant, right, um, we were we were three co-lead pastors. Big mistakes. On paper, that sounds great. In real life, in real life that was that was bad. Yeah. So as about six months into that first church plan, I saw it just going down. I was like, okay, I need to insert myself because I didn't want to be the lead pastor. I was like, listen, I'll preach 40% of the time, do discipleship in small groups and be an itinerant. But as I seen it going down, the more I stepped in, these lead pastor gifts start coming out of me, uh, vision, um, teaching, preaching, leading, inspiring, you, you know, those things started to come out. And then with that first church plant, it was very much like we're the men and we decide, but none of us had ever led anything. It was like hubris 101. And we could never get over 200 people because we didn't even know where the mail was. And it was really, really, really hard for me Yes. Um, because I am strategic. Um, I have leadership gifts and there really wasn't a place for me. And so I was wrestling with, okay, well, I, is it prideful to not be okay to just serve wherever I'm needed? So I helped with groups. I served in the children's. I did all these things. Um, and I tried to humbly just say, God, I'll serve wherever you need me. And in the meanwhile, inside me, I'm about to explode because I see this mess that I'm like, I can fix this. I can fix it. You know, it, 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 it was it was equivalent to like having uh, LeBron James not play basketball, but hand out drinks at the at the game. So the Which, if I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt rudely here, but we are recording this 
a day before the Nuggets, my Nuggets, face LeBron James, I just want to offer a gentle rebuke that I think it's a great idea for <laughs> LeBron to be handing out water bottles fr- just Friday night, just Friday night, and, and then we can let the chips fall. But please continue. Yeah, so uh, what I will say is that two-year process, even though it was painful, it taught us the value of vision, vision casting, aligning the staff to the assignment and creating a gospel ethos and culture. And so when we planted Transformation Church, our first Sunday, 701 people came. But one of the reasons why that happened, obviously the power of the Holy Spirit, but because of what we learned from our mistakes in the first church plant, with the second one, our leadership capacity could support that type of growth because we saw, oh, okay, so we just preached the paint off the walls but we don't have uh, systems, a systems and, and yeah. processes and all those types of things. And, and so as painful as, as it was, it was incredibly helpful yeah. to what we're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. So even when we were building the team for um, for Transformation Church and, and we launched in 2010, uh, we knew it was really critical to bring in people that had the gifts we didn't have. And so from there, God built um, an amazing team, um, not without struggles, obviously, mm-hmm. and even as recent as 2018, we brought in a consultant to help us do some reorging because we hit some lids and there were some leadership lids that, um, quite frankly, talking about leading in marriage, what we were starting to see, it was impacting our relationship. And we're like, yeah, no, that can't happen. It was, it was too stressful. Like we were, we were carrying too much of the load, you know, kind of like how Jamal Murray has to score 40 points. And like, eventually, man, that's just really hard. And so we had to rethink some things. God had to move some people. And since 2018, uh, and let me talk about our staff culture first, because I think that's so important. Yeah, please. In, In American Christianity, we have incorporated the church and turned it into a business. Jesus is a product. The staff is a sales force. The congregation, once they come to faith, is a sales force. And the consumers are the people that they're inviting, right, to come to come to the show. It is it is totally broken. So what happens is, is we value production over people instead of valuing people over production. So what we want at Transformation Church is we want our staff to be the healthiest, and I mean fruit of the spirit healthy, the healthiest part of our church, because as her leadership goes, so goes the people. You can't take people where you haven't gone yourself, right? And so in saying that our staff is incredibly, incredibly healthy, it's a culture of gratitude, a culture of servanthood. No one is competing. No one is striving. We're for each other because we understand the goodness of Christ. And so it's a it's a beautiful culture. And then the benefit is since COVID, our what we call uh, participants at Transformation Church, those who give and serve, was probably about 4,500 since COVID. Uh, we've probably grown to over 7,000 active participants. And last year, about this time, we prayed this big prayer. God, give us 2,000 people a week that watch the Transformation Church messages. It's now over 100,000. 
And a lot of that is the hard work of having a gospel culture, a discipleship culture, a culture where people are valued more than production. And the result is we're experiencing revival. Like in the last two years, we've made over 400,000 meals to help the needy. Like God is moving powerfully. Uh, we haven't met in person since, I don't know what, March? Yeah, yeah March 18th yeah. or so. Yeah. And we are experiencing revival. Like we're seeing close to 400 people have come to faith. And, and, and so as we talk about leadership and leadership anxiety, um, that anxiety has to move us and press us into Jesus. But for a married couple in ministry, we lead out of the overflow of the health of our marriage. Mm -hmm. And we want our best energy to be number one to Jesus and number two to each other, not even our kids. Our kids are third, the staff is fourth, the congregation is fifth. Yeah, I think I think you guys have just nailed something that's so essential. I, I have I've been on a handful of church staffs and it is a painful experience when you see God working in the congregation in amazing ways, but you have to sacrifice your experience as a staff member. Like, like the staff culture might be toxic, but you say to yourself, well, but God's moving in the people, so I'm going to tolerate. And, and so the, the other thing I'll just say is, is the humility of a leader. I think you guys are modeling this for us to recognize your own limits and also recognize how influential your character and personality is on the staff, whether you want it to be or not. Like you can't manage around your character and your personality. I'd love to hear more that you have to say about that. So we actually lead out of who we are, yeah. not who we think we are and not who we want to be. We lead out of who we are, which is why our own formation in Christ is of utmost importance. Number one, yeah. One of the things that we said really early on was that we want our culture to be like we want our staff to be the healthiest Christians at our church, basically. Yeah. And, you know, um, there's this analogy of you go to a restaurant and it's fine dining and the food is amazing. Um, but you go back into the kitchen and it's crazy. It's a nightmare. It's like you've got a chef throwing knives and cussing people out. It's Gordon Ramsay. Right. Exactly. And so we would use the analogy with our staff all the time and he would preach about it is that, um, we don't want to be that. We don't want people to go, wow, they have a great church, but their staff sucks or their staff is miserable. Or And so one of our values that we started out with, we started out with 10, and one of our values is people over production. And now this has been one of our most interpreted values, so we've had to really teach through it, is we value people for more than their gifts. It doesn't mean you don't work hard. That is not what that means. Because we'd have people be like, well, I mean, I'm tired. So people over production and we're like, look, we're all yeah. tired. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, <clears throat> that's one of the things through discipling our staff has been, look, if something's wrong, if something's going on with your marriage, if something's going on with you personally, one, we would like to know about it so we can walk with you. And if we need to set you down and you're not serving, then you're not because you're more valuable than the role that you feel on our staff. And that's a opportunity for us to trust God that he's going to bring what our church needs in terms of people serving. And so um, we put a stake yeah. in the ground with that pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and, and just to add, and I think this is so important. And what you said, Steve, 
is one of the reasons why we see churches, and this isn't to disparage Willow Creek or Mark Driscoll, like we see these epic fails. Right. And the reason why is when church has turned into a business, you look at the bottom line, which is budgets and buildings and butts and seats, and you go, well, we're we're successful. And I think that that is a, uh, for lack of a better word, this toxic culture is bred because of a spiritual capitalism that says we've got to get the product out at all expense. Yeah. So therefore, I'll tolerate the unhealthiness of the leaders and, and say, well, but people are getting saved. Right. You know, well, but look how much we're growing. And this is one of the things I say is I don't want people around me who are dependent on me for their income and well-being because of their income and well-being is facilitated by my giftedness. Then they will look past my blind spots because it's benefiting them. I want people to be loyal to Jesus Christ and loyalty to Jesus Christ means it's not about the bottom line. It's about faithfulness. And so I think that's why with political candidates, we will look past their incredible flaws because we go, well, but they're doing this, this, and this. And it's like, well, no, that's pragmatism. Yeah. Yeah. A little uh, uh, philosophy lesson here. The only American-made philosophy is pragmatism. Uh, Dewey invented it in the 1940s. Pragmatism says, if it works, do it. Faithfulness says be faithful, whether if it works or not. It's not about it working. It's about it being faithful. And so you look at the fallout of leaders and their lack of integrity. It just crushes everything that was placed before, you know. And and so um, a toxic environment in a local church staff is heresy. It's heretical. But what we do is we say, well, but we're being successful. No. And then all of a sudden you get pastors that fall, their families blow up. And what do they do? They fire them and they look for the next showman to entertain the crowds. Philippians 2, 3 says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. And then Paul goes into the early church hymn about Christ and, and who he was and humility and sacrifice. That a healthy church culture says humility rules and reigns. And humility ultimately is not thinking less about yourself. It's thinking less about yourself and you think more about God and the ramifications of his gospel in people's lives. So so we're 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 very, very passionate about that because it bears witness to who Christ is. Mm-hmm. And I'm sick and tired of, well, the buildings are big and they're reaching a lot of pe- 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 people. Literally, America is burning down. The church in America has failed epically with racial justice, racial reconciliation through the gospel, so much so the Black Lives Matter movement had to take up what the church should have done. Right. That's right. A lot of these justice initiatives are due to the failure of the church. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, when I use the term white supremacy, I don't mean hoods and swastikas. What I mean is the normalization of a certain culture as better than other cultures and facilitates that culture to advance. And a lot of times we have normalized 
certain cultures that benefit certain people, but the culture of Christ is Philippians 2, 3. The culture of Christ is, man, no, no, no. If my brothers and sisters are hurting, then I'm hurting injustice anywhere. Injustice anywhere means injustice everywhere. And Jesus is the God of justice. Actually, uh, I'm not sure what order we release these episodes in, uh, but yesterday I was interviewing um, Deborah Pagay. She's a 70-year-old African-American leader. She's John Maxwell coach and written books. Oh, fantastic interview. Well, she was 14 when the Civil Rights Act was passed. And so we were chatting about being a 13-year-old going to the back of the restaurant to get a hamburger and being a 14-year-old and getting to come to the front of the line and what that meant for her and how she made meaning out of it. She talked about the she was integrated into a white school her senior year of high school. And the teacher in the white school said to her, oh, if you'd stayed in that black school, you would have been valedictorian. Mm -hmm. And that and that was her example of systemic racism. Exactly. Like, and, and, she, and she is. And to, you, you know, I don't know if you know her, but she's a force of nature. And so mm -hmm. even as a teenager, she said to the teacher, well, I'm I'll just be the valedictorian of this school. That's no problem. And then she was she. But just, I thought that was a really well-nuanced explanation of either white privilege or systemic racism that just the assumption that because now you're in a white school, you're obviously not, obviously you're not going to be a... Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I would be remiss not to ask either of you, like Vicky, let's begin with you being raised white. You married a black man. Give us a taste of when your eyes were open to systemic racism, either in the church or outside the church, however you'd want to answer it. And then Dylan, I'd love to hear what you have to share. I think, um, interestingly, I think growing up in Montana, um, which has, I think, six um, Native American reservations, early on, that just struck me. I wasn't a believer, but I just, something didn't sit well with me with that. And um, we played basketball games. We'd go to some of the reservations and play basketball games. And so I would see what it looked like. And I didn't have a very good understanding of social culture and all that kind of stuff, but something didn't sit well with me. Um, even you'll remember is about our age when Roots came out. Right. And I remember watching that thinking, this is horrific. Like yeah. I I didn't have a category for why it was okay. Yeah. Um, and it didn't almost seem real in a lot of ways. And so I think um, it was something that God showed me early on, even before I became a Christian. I think going to BYU, being, you know, marrying him, I just didn't see it as a, as a thing. And so the worst racism, we really, I mean, we I had a couple of things happen at BYU but after we'd gotten married and we moved to Indiana, that's when we started to experience real racism. And I remember picking up a newspaper and seeing that um, a short ways outside of Indianapolis, the KKK was doing a rally. And I remember calling my sister and going, does this still happen? Yeah, can, they, can they do that? Like, can they do that? And so um, we experienced quite a bit of racism from um, the teammates. It was really more the black teammates, um, more racist um, prejudice about him marrying me was where we experienced that problem. Now, we did have some go on with my family as well, um, but 
I guess being the strong-willed rebellious, I was kind of like, bye, like, okay, like that's your problem, not mine. Um, And so the systemic piece of it, I don't, I think I had slight understandings of it, but to me, it's become much more obvious now, especially we have two children. We have a 24 year old and a 20 year old. And there's things like um, one of, one of our children is a young man that, you know, conversations he has with them that we have with him about, okay, um, if you get pulled over by a police officer, your hands, you already need to have your registration and license out. Your hands stay on the wheel. You don't move quickly. Yes, sir. No, sir. You look him in the eyes. You know, now those aren't conversations. Most of my white friends are looking at me like, I've never even had to think about that. And I'm like, that's the point. And so I would say it's become more clear to me in the last 10 to 15 years as our children have gotten older. Yeah. And and so uh, as a athlete and as a prominent athlete, there are aspects of it that didn't necessarily uh, affect me in ways that I knew I was so driven to accomplish my goals. What I want to talk more uh, about is the, okay, so definitions are important. Racism is more than just individual. Racism is there's a systemic structure that affords one group of people access to things and it's designed for them, okay? I'm more concerned not about the swastikas and the hoods, but I'm concerned about lending practices. Yeah, redlining, for example. Mass incarceration. The narrative that black men are violent, you know, you'll hear like, well, what about black on black crime? Well, 92% of black on, uh, crime against black men is other black men, but 83% of crime for white men is against, you know, it's it's white on white crime. Yeah. So sin is sin, but also you, you, you do crime against people that you're in proximity with. And then secondly, the history of police brutality. So uh, Transformation Church, we have awards from the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. You can be pro-police and pro-police reform simultaneously. (laughs) You you know know what I'm saying? And, And so there's a history and a narrative, but also I think it's important. And this is, this is really, really important. There's a narrative that black men are violent. And so that's why there's like this angst. Right. But if we're honest with, with ourselves, it wasn't black men who captured black men from Africa and brought them to America and wiped out the Native Americans. That was not black men. And so, like, the narrative is really, really important. And even in Australia, where you're from, like that was the British prisoners who went over there and wiped out the indigenous people. To this very day, indigenous pe- people in Australia have issues. So this isn't just an American problem. That's right. When you, when you go to Croatia, even amongst African tribes, when we disciple, um, when we disciple, uh, we, we disciple a pastor from Nigeria in multi-ethnic ministries, like we need this because Nigeria, even though we're all black, we're from different tribes. And our tribalism supersedes our crisis. So so my point is, there are strong towers and principalities that need to be pulled down. It's not enough just to go, well, I'm not racist. It's like, how do I become an ambassador of reconciliation? And through the gospel, I'm anti-racist so that human flourishing can 
be a part of that. You know, it's, it's fascinating, guys. As I'm hearing you talk, my my next thing to do is to go film the sermon for this week. And the text is Micah six eight. We're talking about what does the Lord require, and I'm I'm just showing what justice is versus mercy, and how they're both essential. And uh, I'm a lead pastor in a predominantly white suburban church, and uh, just even hearing you talk about the Australian stain of sin, I didn't come to terms with that until I was in my twenties. I was in seminary. I had an amazing Ethiopian professor. And he simply told us, he said, look, the the one thing you guys don't need is you get your MDiv as another book by another white guy. Like you've got plenty of those. And so he took us on a liberation theology journey. We started in South America with the Boff brothers. Of course, James Cone. We ended up Kazuke Kuyama in Japan, Native American. And then I chased on my own Aboriginal theology because that was my heritage. And I remember I was in my mid-20s. I'll just take a moment to, to explain it. But I didn't realize until then that I had racist assumptions, which of course I did, but I didn't know. And we all do. We all of do. Course, of course. And there, there was a brewery at home in our city, the Swan Brewery, the most famous brewery in Australia. Swan Beer at the time was the number one selling beer in Australia. And just as a weird aside, we're all Aussies. So our prime minister at the time in the Guinness Book of Records for the most beer consumption in one setting. But I digress. Yeah, great country, great country. And... um we thought it was a great joke that the Aboriginals, uh, the, the tribal Aboriginals in our area wanted to take over the brewery because so many of them struggle with alcoholism. And I remember as a teenager, to my great shame, we thought that was funny. Of course, what we didn't say is we are the reason that many Aboriginals struggle with alcohol because we paid them exclusively in rum when we basically made them work for us on our properties and raped their women. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was reading a scholar named Anne Patel Gray. She's a, she's a Bible scholar and a liberation theologian Aboriginal. And she said uh, in, in this book, uh, The Great White Flood is her book. She said, um, it's the moral imperative of every Aboriginal Christian to go to every white church and proclaim the good news of Jesus because they don't have it. Wow. And we have it and they need it. And she said, and what is the good news that the white church doesn't have? It's two things. One is Jesus died. You don't have to oppress people anymore. Jesus died. You don't have to own property anymore. And of course, Aboriginal culture has an incredible tradition of being nomadic. The idea that they would put a fence around God's property is insane to them. And I just just remember reading that thinking, I've never heard that in a white church, but it's more biblical than what I'm preaching. Um, I I think the massive challenge, I'd I'd just love to get your thoughts on this. And then I think for time, we probably got to move on. But the massive challenge is how do we help people understand because I think our initial reaction is we feel threatened and then defensive. And I've even watched you do and on Twitter, like you've had some people come after you pretty hard. For some <laughs> yeah, things well, that make a, Twitter an awful lot of uh, sense. coming after me hard on um, Twitter. Yeah, the same. Yeah, let, never mind. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm paying attention to people, but. Okay, yeah, it goes to the territory. So the problem, supremacy is a hard sin to give up when it's given you so much. Yeah, when it benefits you, right? That's the the system benefits. So what we've got to disciple people here with the Transformation Church and throughout America for American Christians is their identity is in Christ, not in the success of America. Nationalism is an is an idol. Our citizenship is in the kingdom of God, which should make us great citizens, which means the human flourishing of 
all old people. And so Native Americans here in America are Native Americans. They they too suffer with alcohol addiction, but no one sees. Well, that's how they were paid. That's how they yeah. were manip- manipulated. And plus, if you get put on a reservation with no access to anything, your land stolen, your history ripped apart, how would you feel about yourself? Right. I mean, that's why a lot of Europeans left Europe. That's the American story. We're being oppressed by the king. So we're going to go do our own thing and then take that same oppression upon people. Right. So people will say, well, Derwin, don't bring up the past. And I'll say, well, let's don't bring up 9-11. Why do we bring up the past of 9-11? It was an attack against humanity. It was an attack against our nation. Well, slavery and injustice is an attack against humanity, and it's an attack against our nation. Our nation, the Constitution, liberty and justice for all. If that's not happening, then that's an attack. But as Christians, our identity is in Christ, not in America. I I think what's such a gift that you you guys are building something that's kingdom-based. And you're not afraid to critique the systems and structures in doing it. But you you really have built a beautiful vision that's actually being realized. So I, I hope people are learning from you guys and and paying attention and, and changing our own posture. My, as as a white Aussie, as an immigrant, you know, with my dealing with my own past in Australia and here, all I can say is um, I'm not gonna change until it costs me something like that. I think when you said that, do and that the systems and structures whoever it benefits, they're the ones that then have to move the furthest. And that's the beauty of the gospel is the gospel called me to sacrifice. So uh, it's a beautiful vision. Yeah. I know we have like, yeah. we've been on here a while. Right? Yeah, and we got to go. We got to make a phone okay, call. Okay, you got to yeah. wrap up. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure yeah. you scheduled the phone call to bypass the fear and trembling that the gauntlet of anxiety was going to send. Oh, yeah. So let's do the gauntlet Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Let's right, do the yeah. gauntlet. We'll, do, yeah. well, let's see. We'll do two questions. Uh, you guys, we'll, we'll do three questions. Here's the first one. One of the guaranteed ways to generate anxiety in a leader is when you make a mistake in public. Would either of you be willing to talk about a recent mistake you've made and how you recovered from it? Uh, I'm trying to think of one. Um, yeah, I make mistakes all the time. Um, well, before I give an example, when you make a mistake in public, you say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake because your identity's in Christ. And in him, we're justified, we're accepted, we're loved. Um, I would say an example is uh, maybe I've retweeted uh, something that I did not research all the way through. I mean, I've made bi- uh, bad hires before, and I've had to apologize to our staff. I mean, apo- I mean, none of no one is perfect. So therefore, ap- repentance and apology should be intrinsic to leading. Let me jump into it, and and I know we're short on time. Does anything go on in in your mind? Do you struggle to forgive yourself when you make a mistake? I know in my case, I tend to be pretty harsh on myself. Like I, my, my internal narrative is, oh, I should know better by now. Does any of that happen for you? Oh yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, what we say at Transformation Church is the scene of the crime is your mind. And I just have to discipline myself in the spirit to say, 
these feelings are not facts. What facts, the facts are the bloody cross and an empty tomb. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The feeling may not go away, but my feelings don't determine the truth of his redemptive work. Yeah, totally. Okay, very good. Okay, Vicki, this one's for you then. Every one of us are impacted by a family of origin. You guys have talked a bit about that. Could you give us one trait from your family of origin that has helped you in leadership and then one that has maybe gotten in the way? <laughs> well, it might, it might be the same trait. Um, work ethic. Um, I come from a line of, I mean, my mom is 76, Six. working full time. She, we laugh. We're like, she runs circles around us. Like she is just a go-getter. Um, but yes, I would say that's been a strength because a work ethic that just, I mean, drives, won't stop. Well, you can't tell me something can't be done. Um, but in some ways it has, uh, crippled me and caused me to rely more on myself than to rely on Jesus. And, um, the Lord loves us too much to allow us to go on like that. And so um, I went through cancer in 2004. I've been through clinical depression twice and um, a miscarriage. And I also have extremely difficult pregnancies where I'm um, sent to the hospital and on bed rest and IVs. And I'm like, oh, maybe this is why he wants me to rely on him and not on me. And so the very thing that was a strength, the Lord had to show me that it needed to be under the Holy Spirit's power to continue to be a strength and not become a weakness. Yeah, really good. All right, final question. Uh, when in your life do either of you feel most fully and completely loved? Oh, man. Wow. So... <clears throat> This may sound kind of strange. Like, I know how much my wife loves me. My children adore me. But in sermon preparation, I have these praise moments in Starbucks where, like, for me, preaching a sermon's great, but the time that I have with God <clears throat> and listening to Him and Him clutching and holding me. I just, I just sense his presence just beautifully and it just washes over me. Mm -hmm. I would say, um, similar, not message preparation. Cause that stresses me out to be honest. <laughs> um, but for me, I very much like I, my preference is to be an early riser, to spend time in the morning, um, reading my Bible. I like to journal. I journal my prayers a lot. I actually did an IG live on that yesterday with our church. Um, and for me, that time of me being able to just like, let it all out. I, the Lord already knows what's in my heart, but so it's really more for me and really watching him answer prayer in my life, um, in not in the way I necessarily think, like he doesn't necessarily give me what I asked for, but he gives me the comfort, the peace and the security of knowing, um, who he is and how deeply he loves me. Um, those are moments that like nothing on earth can replace that. Wonderful. Dylan and Vicki, thank you so much. Uh, I was looking forward to this. I always love interviewing couples. You guys are a powerhouse. I think your passion exudes through and uh, I'll put links in the show notes. Dewan's latest book is The Good Life. It's, it's, it's simply the Beatitudes and what true happiness is. It's a powerful book. There's so much to learn from the, these guys. So we'll have ways to get a hold of you guys in the show notes. I just appreciate the extra time you gave today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Have a great day. Yes. Peace. 
For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.